Father, again with gratitude, we come at the close of this day to acknowledge your kindness and care for us. We thank you for the wonderful subjects that uh, we are taking up tonight. The one that gives us a structure of thinking about all of redemptive history and the other uh, to consider what is at the heart of redemptive history, uh, our Savior as the mediator of the covenant. And we pray that our hearts would be lifted up as we consider these marvelous things. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, tonight I am determined to get through both of these chapters. Um, God's covenant with man is the tougher of the two, but I'm thinking we can do uh, Christ the mediator of the covenant uh, with some alacrity, because if there's anything you're familiar with in uh, the confession of faith, it's the, the personal work of Christ, I'm confident. And uh, the divines are just pretty straightforwardly orthodox on that subject, so it's an enormously important subject. We could spend a lot of time on it, but and it would be worth it. But I think you're probably very familiar with most of what you find in that chapter, and I'm mo- mostly going to make a few comments, but to ter- uh, depend on you if you have questions about the way they're phrasing things to raise them. And I think with that expedient, we can get through. Um, so the covenant. First, a couple words of introduction to this seventh chapter. Uh, Gerhardus Voss who was a, a great theologian of the early 20th century, was at Princeton, and is often called the father of Reformed biblical theology. Gerhardus Voss said this, The Westminster Confession is the first Reformed confession in which the doctrine of the covenant is not merely brought in from the side, but placed in the foreground, and it has been able to permeate at almost every point. And I, I think that's a, a very fair uh, statement. Now, the next one I'm going to put in the chat because it's really quite an extraordinary sentence and you don't get to see a sentence like this very often. So I thought you might uh, have it visually before you. Um, this is from Benjamin Warfield, uh, just a, probably a little before Voss, uh, but r- roughly around the same time, also at Princeton. He said this, the architectonic principle of... Have you ever heard that used in a sentence? <laughs> the, the architectonic principle of the Westminster Confession is supplied by the schematization of the West of federal theology, which had obtained by this time in Britain, as on the continent, a dominant position as the most commodious mode of presenting the corpus of reform doctrine. Is that a great sentence? <laughs> so, uh, architectonic, that, that, that is the structural principle of the whole thing. Um, the uh, schematization, um, now you're following that out in detail, and he's saying that... Um, the, this principle of the covenant, which is now here going under uh, the shorthand federal theology, uh, by the time of Westminster, was thought of as the most commodious, that is to say, the uh, most accommodating, the most comfortable, uh, the best equipped mode of setting forth the whole body of Reformed doctrine. 
And I think that's certainly true as well. In other words, this chapter, God's Covenant with Man, is not merely a random chapter in the Confession. Rather, it is the structural framework around which the entire Confession is built, manifesting a commitment to the glory of God above all else. So let's begin uh, with this chapter. First section, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe him obedience, owe unto him, uh, owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Um, so, um, at the very beginning here, we have a reflection on the Bible's teaching about the structure of the relationship between God and creatures created in his image. And the first assertion, and this is most crucial for understanding covenant theology, and people who miss this end up distorting covenant theology. First, we have an assertion of God's transcendence his metaphysical and ethical transcendence. In other words, his transcendence with respect to his being and with respect to his holiness, his utter transcendence. As creatures, the divines are saying, uh, we owe God. As creator, he could never owe us of himself. As creatures, we owe God as creator. He could never owe us of himself. He could only owe us if he voluntarily established a relation where he put himself in such a circumstance. And that is the covenant. And, and you see the, the text, some of the text that the divines bring forward, they want to make sure this is clear. The powerful text from Isaiah 40, Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. They're counted as small dust in the balance. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. The utter transcendence of God. He owes us nothing. Um, and to, to the words of our Lord, so striking in Luke uh, 17.10, here he's re- referring to uh, servants who have been diligent in the service of their master, and he says, So likewise ye, when you have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants, for we have only done what it is our duty to do. Uh, so that that's the main point here. And you see how they pick up on this then. Uh, in other words, grace is the context of covenant theology, not works. Um, now, I, I'm saying that because, on the other hand, there is very definitely a covenant of works, and Reformed theology isn't embarrassed by that because it's precisely what the teaching of Scripture is and it's a teaching of Scripture that's absolutely crucial for understanding the work 
of Christ. Um, so, we get to point two. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was pr- promised to Adam and in him to his pos- posterity upon condition of perfect and personal, and 19.1 on the law adds, and perpetual obedience. That's the full idea. So, a covenant of works, life promised Adam. Remember, God didn't owe Adam life. It's in setting up this relationship that God voluntarily condescends to promise Adam life in relationship to his faithful obedience. Otherwise, it would have been as Jesus said, if Adam had been perfectly faithful, he'd be an unprofitable servant because he'd have only done his due. God graciously and condescendingly establishes this relation. Now, some theologians, a host of modern theologians, uh, don't like to call this arrangement a covenant, and I just want to have a word or two about this. Uh, they make a big deal about the fact that the term is not used in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, And I want to first note here uh, the ancient theological maxim that ought to be deployed here. If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. Uh, That is emblazoned on on my uh, study wall here. The Um, In other words, all the elements of the covenant are present in the narrative. A sovereignly determined and administered arrangement between God and man with penalties and promises. All the parts are there. And so it's perfectly fair to call it a covenant. Furthermore, in Scripture, you can have a covenant without the word being used at all. You see this significantly in the covenant with David set forth in 2 Samuel 7, God's covenant with David and his line. In the giving covenant portion, the word covenant isn't used at all. It's only called a covenant elsewhere in 2 Samuel 23, 5 and in Psalm 89, 3, but not in the making of it. Um, uh, But further... There is a very suggestive passage in Hosea which seems to have indicated the use of the term. Here, uh, God is speaking through the prophet Israel who's been disobedient. In verse 4, we read, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. And then drop down a few verses to 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They have dealt faithlessly with me. So there it appears that uh, Hosea is calling the Adamic administration a covenant. Um, But I I would say further, uh, the analogy with the covenant of grace and the headship position of Adam and Christ uh, demands the idea that this be seen as a covenant. Another where it's when Paul in Roman in, in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5 contrasts the position of Adam and Christ as federal heads with respect to the work of salvation. 
Christ is the head of the new covenant. Adam, then, to keep the parallelism, is the head of the old covenant. And finally, I I would add this, that while the word covenant uh, in the Bible first appears in the history of Noah in Genesis 6, 18, it's obvious that God's covenant blessings with Noah set forth using the word covenant in Genesis 9 is in essence the same covenant as the blessing and commission to Adam. Same words are used. Uh, Noah is a new Adam in a sense. Uh, He's to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He's to be a blessing to the nations. In short, the original blessing of our first parents is repeated to Noah in what is called a covenant. So those would be considerations, it seems to me, that fully vindicate the divines in speaking of uh, this as a covenant. Now concerning the name, covenant of works, there's no name given in the narrative for uh, this covenant. Um, It's sometimes called by the theologians uh, a covenant of life. Some people prefer that phrase, as if somehow uh, grace is more properly emphasized rather than works in the first title. Uh, But this is a mistake. First, after section one, the, the beginning of this chapter, it would be impossible to make the matter more gracious than it is. Secondly, properly works refers to the condition of the covenant and life refers to the reward of the covenant. They're both perfectly legitimate aspects of the covenant, and you could take either of them as the name. To denigrate works here, as if it's contrary to grace, is to misunderstand the whole nature of the covenant of works. These are real works that with the promise of God really do earn blessing but it's in the context of a gracious framework where God voluntarily imposed this covenant on Adam and Eve. Um, Well, uh, so much for that item two and uh, defense of uh, it being a covenant and it uh, being uh, called a covenant of works. Item three, man by his fall having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. So, Adam failed to earn the blessing and therein earned the curse of the covenant of works. God's remedy? A second covenant, a covenant of grace, commonly called, they note. Though It is thoroughly gracious as it is offered to sinners as such, not sinners reformed or uh, repentant, just sinners as, 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 as such, 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And though requiring faith, the conditions of that faith, being willing and able to believe, is promised to God's elect through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see why I say there are conditions, as all covenant have conditions. But the fact is the condition is supplied by God. And thus it's entirely right to say this is a thoroughly, a thoroughgoing uh, grace. Um, the uh, Chad, in his commentary, captures the significance of the difference in the two covenants wonderfully. Um, on page 100, where the first covenant is a deep expression of God's willingness to have fellowship with mere creatures. This second covenant is a staggering display of God's willingness to forgive and to have fellowship with those who are unworthy. And the point is, uh, God is going to um, intervene and change them. This is the wonderful promise of Ezekiel 36. A new heart I will give to you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Well, let me pause there for a moment. Any question with respect to these first three items in, uh, of the covenant? Anyone? All right, I'll press on. Uh, this covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Now I'll note here uh, this poor little item four, uh, a single sentence, is probably the part of the confession of faith that most candidates take exception to. Uh, they take exception to it because in the New Testament of the 30 times the Greek word in view is used, it is only once translated testament or will in the ESV in Hebrews 9.16. In every other place, the Greek word is translated covenant. Uh, the, um, the, the ESV doesn't use the word testament at all. It uses the word will. Uh, uh, so to say that it's frequently set forth that way, it, it seems to be a bit uh, of a mistake. And it, it, uh, it's because of the advance of both translation capacity and understanding of covenant theology that the idea of testament has um, fallen into the background. Uh, nevertheless, the Hebrews passage is important um, because it, uh, it makes the, this contribution. Um, now here you'll see that... Um, I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. Um, and the word, for, the Greek word for covenant is used three times in this passage. But one of the times it's translated, not covenant, but testament. The other two times, covenant. So here we are. Therefore, he is the mediator, mediator of a new covenant, that is Jesus, so that those who are called may receive the promise 
eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, there's the same Greek word for covenant, the death of the one who made it must be established. For the will to take effect only at death, for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Uh, so you can see there contextually um, the way the discussion's going. It seems to require the translation will there, but it's virtually the only place uh, in the Bible where uh, you, you get that kind of contextual uh, uh, help on the matter. Item four. Um, the um, item five, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and so is called the Old Testament. So here we have a description of the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace. It's through shadows and types of Christ, ways in which Christ is uh, foreshadowed or prefigured. And this uh, administration of the covenant of grace, they insist, is perfectly sufficient for the experience of salvation and discipleship for the people of God in that age. Um, the point is that salvation is by Christ through faith wrought by the Holy Spirit, leading to obedience in every administration of the covenant of grace, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's the fundamental pattern. Uh, the way in which Christ is communicated is markedly different. Types and shadows and reality. Uh, and uh, the character of the faith is markedly different in that in the New Testament, it's a faith that's uh, far more informed, uh, a far more intelligent faith than it could have been uh, in the Old Testament. But in both, it's, uh, the schemes are perfectly sufficient uh, to bring God's elect to the f fullness of salvation in Christ. Six, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed, uh, I'm sorry, let me start that again. Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them is held forth in more fullness, evidence, 
and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Well, let me comment. Um, The point, Christ is the substance, and Christ uh, now has appeared. And when the reality is present, naturally the shadows flee. It would be retrograde to try and live under the administration of the covenant in the Old Testament when, in fact, all that it was pointing to has come to pass. When the antitype is present, there is no longer any need for types. Uh, Note here, this is not the way the word antitype is used in general today, but in biblical studies it means uh, one that is foreshadowed by or identified with an earlier symbol or type. Uh, Today it almost always means the reverse. It's a kind of a synonym for prototype. Um, But uh, the the point here is that um, the... uh, uh, you see this in Colossians 2.17 that, that uh, um, having described the uh, Old Testament religion, uh, Paul says these are a shadow of things to come, uh, but the body is of Christ. Um, but the f- fact is, um, it's all one way of salvation. So the Galatians passage is important here, Galatians 3 Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Um, the uh, So, Here's the point. From the resurrection of Christ until his return, the covenant of grace is administered with greater simplicity, clearer reality, in spirit and in truth, with more inward apprehension uh, than outward show, with more power, and, in fact, now addressed to all nations. Um, So, one covenant of grace under various dispensations. Now, don't let the word, uh, I've already warned you, don't let the word dispensations trouble you. Um, uh, uh, the confession of faith is not teaching dispensationalism. It's using the word dispensation, which is a perfectly good word. Um, in fact, the theological use of the term dispensation is far antecedent to and has nothing to do with the latter and mistaken development of an ism. Although I will note that one writer from this school thought he had shown the ancient character of that scheme simply by showing all the theologians who had used the term in the past, uh, which was not a very effective argument for anyone who actually knew anything of the history of theology. In sum, there are only two covenants, works and grace. The covenant of works covers all of mankind and that the fall is brought to bear on mankind as curse. The covenant of grace covers all the elect. 
and is brought to bear on them throughout all of redemptive history. Thus the Old Testament is not the covenant of works, and the New Testament the covenant of grace. Rather, Old Testament and New Testament are different administrations of the one covenant of grace. Well, there you have it. Um, uh, a uh, tremendous contribution made by the divines to the history of theology, and it's only developed further since then in the uh, grand work of people like Gerhardus Voss and in our own time Palmer Robertson and others. Um, so any questions on the uh, covenant? All right. Maybe uh, oh, yes. a question, Dave. So who would have the best summary or um, best description of that difference between uh, you know, covenant theology and, and dispensationalism? I know you mentioned Voss. I don't know if there's some really good elements there. Um, and I, I know that maybe the dispensationalists would argue that there's even more than just two covenants. That's right. Well, or they would say that there are different dispensations that, that don't exactly agree with each other on how many, um, seven or ten. And, and, and their scheme is that at least at its most uh, rudimentary it is that it's a trial and error business on God's part. He tries one thing. And that doesn't work. So he institutes a new administration. And he tries that, and that doesn't work, and he institutes a new administration. Um, and, but then finally, there are uh, two separate schemes of salvation, one for Israel and one for the church. Um, the uh, Voss is outstanding in biblical theology. He would show you the unity. He wouldn't be directly a, a, addressing uh, dispensationalism. Um, although Voss is very, very dense to read, uh, that's the only drawback. Um, you have to be a very patient reader. Uh, uh, Palmer Robertson's book, Christ of the Covenants, it's a uh, 20th century book, and it's an outstanding study. And Palmer does engage dispensationalism, but that's not the point of the book. But that's an outstanding unfolding of uh, uh, contemporary Reformed understanding of the covenants. Um, uh, now, John Gerstner wrote a, a book on dispensationalism that's on dispensationalism, and he goes point by point in opposition to uh, the various dispensational writers. And there's a, there's a range uh, among them. The Schofield Bible dispensationalism is very much different than the dispensationalism of Dallas Seminary today. Um, but those would be a few. Vern Poitras also at Westminster has a book on dispensationalism that would be valuable. Those are a few items. Um, Great, thanks. Yeah. Kate or Will? It's me, Dave. Yeah. So just so the Adamic covenant and the Noahic and the Davidic, they're all works, but no. then... No, they're all covenant of grace. Okay. Everything after Eden is an administration of the covenant of okay. grace. Uh, in fact, that would, that's the dispensational scheme. 
what you were just describing. They are really different covenants. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. All right, any, anything else on the covenants? All right, as I said, this is a very important chapter uh, of Christ the Meteor. It's a precious chapter, but it's also something I'm sure you're very familiar with. So uh, we're, we're going to um, press right through with me just making a few comments. Um, and I think we can finish this evening. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, and the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. Um, Here we have uh, God the Father um, and his purpose, eternal, and the Son, with a cascade of titles and offices. Um, this is all rooted uh, here. Um, the, uh, uh, when the divines use the word God in, relate, and in some way juxtaposed to the Lord Jesus Christ, it almost always means God the Father. So you can understand that as a way, the way that they write. Um, so it pleased the Father in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. He is to be what? A mediator. That's a go-between. Uh, someone who uh, can connect differing parties. Um, he's a prophet, a prophet greater than Moses uh, that uh, had been promised. He is a priest greater than Aaron, a a, a, a priesthood that is eternal and um, transcends the Aaronic priesthood completely. And he's a king, uh, a greater king than David. Um, all of these offices are combined and consummated in Jesus. And in each one of them, he is active today in ministry. He, uh, he is still speaking his word um, to us through the scriptures, by the power of the Spirit. He is still interceding for us uh, uh, before the Father in heaven. And he's still a great king uh, doing battle um, against his and our enemies and uh, building his kingdom. He's the head and savior of his church, and he's the only one. There are no other saviors, and there's no other head of the church, and that means we have to listen to his word about how the church should be uh, run. He's the heir of all things. Jesus inherits from his Father uh, all of creation. Uh, Striking language from Hebrews Uh, 1-2. God has appointed his Son heir of all things, by whom also he made all worlds. And finally, he's the judge of the world. Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. And uh, this is the context for the wonderful words of John in his first epistle. Uh, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. uh, I make this point frequently, but to do it again, what you expect in this passage is this. He is faithful and gracious to forgive us our sins 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But John says he is faithful and just. Our forgiveness is a matter of justice. The one who will judge the world in righteousness will justly forgive us because he will have paid the penalty for our sins. Uh, that's a remarkable uh, teaching of the scripture. Um, so here then we turn from uh, the titles and offices uh, to those um, in relationship to whom the titles and offices are given. Uh, the Father has given Jesus a people, and he's exercising these titles and offices in relationship to them. The Father's given him a people to be his seed. Uh, they are uh, his family uh, to inherit with him. Um, and uh, here, strikingly, in these phrases, eternity and time are immutably united. He gave him a people from all eternity, and in time, that giving comes to pass. That is, the giving now is spelled out. What, what, for, what's it got to be for him to have a people? They've got to be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Um, and notice here that the benefits of Christ's work are laid out in an unbroken chain. If the Father gave this people from all eternity, and if in time what it, be, what it means to receive that people is that they're redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified, then the two are unbreakably connected with one another. It's a, it's a remarkable truth they're stating. Section 2. Um, the, uh, by, by the way, the, the idea of a gift of a people is so beautifully uh, set forth in John seventeen six. the one of the proofs there that I wanted to draw your attention to it. Jesus, here on the, as he's facing the cross uh, in the upper room, I have manifested my name unto the men which thou hast given me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Well, section two, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, uh, you know there that very means truly, uh, he's truly and eternal God, of one substance, uh, here we're in deep waters, <laughs> you realize, uh, substance, um, that means uh, of the same being or essence or you could say stuff. <laughs> He's of the same divine stuff that the Father is, whatever it is. <laughs> and we haven't a clue. <laughs> we're, we're using words that we can't say much more than using the word. Um, uh, of one substance and equal with the Father, um, and yet in the fullness of time. Uh, he takes upon himself man's nature with all its essential properties, in other words, the same stuff, uh, and common infir uh, infirmities thereof. Uh, so truly man, um, and not superman, uh, uh, suffering 
all of the infirmities that belong to man in this fallen order, um, and yet without sin, without any relationship to sin uh, whatsoever. Uh, Conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and here's the substance language again, of her substance. Uh, Whatever it is to be human, he has the same substance as her. And here's the the, uh, grand uh, crescendo. Um, So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, without composition, without confusion. Which person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Uh, That's a a very, very fine statement. But that's just Nicene orthodoxy. The divines, you know, are are well uh, learned in that, but they're they're not making any new contribution here. They're preserving uh, what is uh, the ancient faith of the church. Let me pause there for a moment and see if there are any questions, comments, reflections. I just have the hardest time imagining that 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 sentence you read about uh, Christ being, you know, imperfectly man and, and perfectly God. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine him being in a human body. Yes. What experience must have been throughout his development as a human. Yes. Like as, a, as a child learning to walk and. You know, Absolutely. Um, it, it's hard to imagine. I can only imagine it as as what I understand of the human experience. But what was it like for him? Yes. Uh, I know that's not very theological, but it's it's something. It's it's just very difficult to fathom in going through that. Absolutely, it is, and it's wonderful at the same time. Uh, and in fact, section three. Uh, really powerfully, and uh, this is worth underlining. Let me press on to section three. The Lord Jesus Christ, now we we, we have multiple subdivisions in this very long sentence, and so I want you to hold on to the first one. The Lord Jesus Christ in his human nature. That's the focal point. Thus united to the divine, yes, but that's what what we're going to be talking about. In his human nature, he was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. Now, the word sanctified there is being used in its most uh, basic sense, not of uh, making someone more holy, but rather in the sense of being set apart. Uh, It's the same way that the vessels were sanctified in the temple. They were set apart for a holy use. Jesus, in his human nature, was set apart unto God, and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. And it's that anointing of the Spirit with respect to his human nature that enabled the ministry that he undertook. It wasn't principally the divine nature coming forward. It was the human nature uh, with the Holy, endued powerfully with the Holy Spirit, so that he truly was the second Adam, uh, transformed 
by the power of God to be enabled to fulfill what he was born of a woman to do. He did it as born of a woman through the power of the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon him. So, anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, full of grace and truth, he might be, now remember, this is all with respect to his human nature, full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Um, the uh, last part is, is really beautiful. Uh, Jesus is just like you or me. He has a calling from the Father. And every one of us has a calling uh, to love and serve the Lord. Jesus didn't presume but he was called by his father to uh, execute uh, this work of a mediator. But having been called, then uh, he responds. Section 4, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul, and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and was buried and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. Now, just a, 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 a comment here. Um, think of the sermon last week. We at length uh, considered how to understand the degrees as God simply appointing an end but having no interest or concern for the means is to misunderstand entirely. Well, here's a perfect example of this. Um, it was the Father's purpose that Jesus be the mediator. But here, wonderfully, creatively, astonishingly, all of the means to that end were well supplied also. And that's really what this paragraph is, is laying out all of the means to the end that Jesus uh, would be the mediator for his people. Uh, with respect to the text in Luke twenty-two, forty-four, 44, uh, uh, sustaining the idea of grievous torments immediately in his soul, um, let me mention that uh, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on that text, which was, one of the, in my judgment, one of the most powerful sermons he ever preached. It isn't uh, very well known in the whole Edwards uh um, body of work, but it is remarkable. And I do have a transcription, uh, a digital version of that. If anyone would like it, uh, just email me and I'd be glad to send it along to you. It's a long sermon. It's, and it's one I say that uh, I think I mentioned we now know that Edwards preached the same sermon over many meetings in, in parts. And uh, it's good to know that once you see this thing, because you imagine these people were there all day and night. He was trying to be like Paul and have them all fall out the window. Uh, but in any case, it's a, it's a powerful sermon, and I'd be glad to send you a copy of it.
Um, so he, uh, he um, on the third day, he rose again from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. I will say that uh, just in passing, I think that was a temporary circumstance um, uh, for apologetic purposes. I don't believe that there's any reason to think that Jesus has a bloody side and holds in his hands and feet in heaven today. Uh, uh, the, um, and we could talk about that at some point if you'd like. Um, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sitteth on the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. All very familiar material from uh, the creeds and confessions that we recite regularly. Item five, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit offered, once offered uh, up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all of those whom the Father hath given him. Well, you see, perfect obedience earned the blessings of the covenant that Adam forfeit. Adam didn't obey. He did not get life. Jesus did obey, and he earned the blessedness of the covenant for his people. And he purchased uh, uh, reconciliation. Um, sacrifice. He paid the penalty of the covenant. What Adam was only paying symbolically, Jesus took on himself. He satisfied the justice of God with respect to the threat of the covenant of works for all of his people. Now, get this. That's the doctrine of the atonement. Two parts. Righteousness that earns the blessing of the covenant of works. Sacrifice that bears the curse of the covenant of works. And it affects those ends. It is purchased. Justice is satisfied. So that if you understand the meaning of the work of Christ, you can see that it's impossible for one given to Jesus by the Father to perish. It's impossible for one given to Jesus by the Father to perish. And all of that is tied up in simply understanding what Christ accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. Um, if you've never had a chance to read uh, Dr. Packer's introduction to John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, I think it's one of the most extraordinary things that he ever wrote. It certainly was an earth-shaking thing uh, when he wrote it. Uh, among evangelicals. Um, but uh, it, it's an extended study of just this idea that if you understand the atonement, everything else in Reformed theology follows from it. All right. Item six. 
Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head, the lamb slain from the beginning of the world being yesterday, today, and forever. So they're noting the work had to be done in a particular time and place. But the one working and the efficacy of what he accomplished was available to all of the elect from the beginning of the world until the end of the world. It didn't have to be accomplished first for it to be available because the certainty of Christ's work uh, uh, granted, as it were, credit for everyone to enjoy from, the, from uh, Adam and Eve to the end of the world. Um, the, uh, and, and as I say then, um, every administration of the covenant of works, uh, of the covenant of grace, um, was a means by which that virtue, efficacy, and benefits were communicated to the elect. In other words, during the period from Adam to Noah, during the period of Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from uh, Moses to uh, the kings and the prophets, in all the different ways the covenant of grace was administered, it was effectively the benefits of Christ's work being communicated to them through those means. Seven, Christ in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by each doing what is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Um, this is an important point. Um, the latter... Uh, there aren't that many times when it takes place in Scripture, but they want to point it out so we know how to read it correctly. But to give you a clue uh, as to what they're talking about or an, or an instance of it, it's sometimes said, said that the divine nature is the altar upon which the human nature was sacrificed. That's a nice image. Uh, it goes as back as early to William Googe, but maybe even earlier. His, he was one of the Westminster divines. Uh, he wrote a marvelous work on Hebrews. But you see, the divine nature couldn't die. Only the human nature could. So if we're to have one who isn't in the bondage of death, that's the altar upon which the sacrifice is made. The altar is going to survive. The human nature does what it does. It dies. And then there's the resurrection. So that, that's some idea of the distribution uh, of the work according to uh, the, uh, what, what is proper to each nature. Um, and then finally, uh, eight. 
And this is a precious paragraph. This is really good news and one of the most beautiful paragraphs in the confession. To all of those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectively persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey, and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all of their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Uh, There's prophet, priest, and king uh, laid out before us. Um, And it... uh, it's an amazingly wonderful consolation to think of such a ministry uh, on the part of our Savior uh, 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 on our behalf even now. Well, questions about uh, anything that we've covered this evening, either with respect to the covenant or with respect to the mediator of the covenant? That's a, It's a beautiful chapter on Christ and uh, it's worth reflecting upon, but I think you're familiar with most of the ideas that we've covered, so I don't uh, um, feel badly uh, galloping a little bit <laughs> this evening. But I'm happy to stay on and take questions as long as if you have interest or concern. Anyone? All right, now I hope you all get a good uh, copy to, to put in your notebook of Warfield's architectonic principle <laughs> sentence. <laughs> um, and as I say, if, if you uh, want uh, a copy of that Edward sermon, let me know and I'll, I'll send it along to you. All right, let's pray together. Our gracious Father, Uh, What wonderful things we've been privileged to behold tonight from your word. To have such uh, a sense of your grace and condescension that you would create a covenant to help us to, in our frailty, have confidence in your goodness and care and the wonderful way in which you've ordered all of history in relationship to these covenants and the heads of them. And we thank you most for the second Adam and the wonderful insight into the mystery of this uh, glorious person. And we pray that we would ever grow in love and admiration and thus faithful service. To him, and we ask it in his name. Amen.